You're listening to a Cyberwire podcast from N2K Networks, powered by Dragos. It's July 12th, 2023, and you're listening to Control Loop. In today's OT cybersecurity briefing, Japan's largest port was disrupted by ransomware. Plop breaches Schneider Electric and Siemens Energy, solar panel vulnerabilities, threats and risks to electric vehicle charging stations. Red Energy ransomware and information stealer is targeting industrial sectors. CISA advisories... Our guest Christopher Ebley from Blackwood returns to discuss the ITOT cultural divide in the federal space and IT threats that are impacting OT systems. Our guest Christopher Ebley from Blackwood returns to discuss the ITOT cultural divide in the federal space and IT threats that are impacting OT systems. The Learning Lab continues part two of the three-part discussion between Dragos's Mark Urban and vulnerability analyst Logan Carpenter talking about the vulnerabilities in the OT world. The port of Nagoya, Japan's busiest ocean terminal, sustained a ransomware attack against the Nagoya Port Unified Terminal System on July 4th, leaping computer reports. Nikkei Asia says the issue came to light when a port employee noticed anomalies in his system— Investigation revealed the cause to be a ransomware infestation. The Japan Times says the Lockbit gang was responsible for the attack. Bloomberg reports that the port began gradually resuming operations on July 6th. The Klopp ransomware gang has used the MoveIt vulnerability to compromise Schneider Electric and Siemens Energy, Security Affairs reports. Siemens said in a statement to Bleeping Computer... Regarding the global data security incident, Siemens Energy is among the targets. Based on the current analysis, no critical data has been compromised and our operations have not been affected. We took immediate action when we learned about the incident. Schneider says they've contained the incident, telling Bleeping Computer, On May 30, 2023, Schneider Electric became aware of vulnerabilities impacting Progress MoveIt transfer software, we promptly deployed available mitigations to secure data and infrastructure and have continued to monitor the situation closely. After applying the mitigations, the company learned of claims that it had been the victim of an attack that exploited MoveIt vulnerabilities. It's investigating those claims as well. An investigation and analysis by the Dragos Threat Intelligence Team has yielded some important insights into CLOPS activities. Notably, Dragos was able to recover targeted process names associated with specific hash values embedded in a CLOP sample. While most of these are IT-related processes, CLOP ransomware does contain targeting of OT-related processes found in Windows operating systems. However, it does not use or target OT-specific protocols. The primary threat from CLOPS activities is directed toward IT networks and IT assets within OT environments. The impact on OT networks can become significant if the adversary manages to encrypt servers, historians, engineering workstations, and other essential computing devices. 
Security Week reports that hundreds of instances of the solar power monitoring product Context SolarView are still affected by an actively exploited vulnerability described by Palo Alto Networks last month. An exploit for the vulnerability, CVE 2022-29303, has been public since May 2022. Researchers at Volncheck found 600 SolarView instances exposed to the Internet, 400 of which are vulnerable. Volncheck states, When considered in isolation, exploitation of this system is not significant. The SolarView series are all monitoring systems, so loss of view is likely the worst-case scenario. However, the impact of exploitation could be high, depending on the network the SolarView hardware is integrated into. For instance, if the hardware is part of a solar power generation site, then the attacker may affect loss of productivity and revenue by using the hardware as a network pivot to attack other ICS resources. So, the issue isn't the individual panels, but rather the potential effect on the grid. Wired describes the potential impacts of vulnerabilities affecting electric vehicle charging stations. Ken Monroe, a co-founder of Pentest Partners, told Wired that his top concern was with vulnerabilities that could allow attackers to stop or start chargers en masse, which could destabilize electricity networks. Monroe said, We've inadvertently created a weapon that nation-states can use against our power grid. Monroe says legislation in the United Kingdom could serve as a model for lawmakers in the U.S. The U.K. requires EV charging stations to have a randomized delay functionality of up to 10 minutes, which would mitigate the impact of thousands of charging stations turning on at the same time. Monroe stated, You don't get that spike, which is great. It removes the threat from the power grid. And so, again, it's not so much the station as it is the grid and the effect that deliberately induced power fluctuations can have on that larger electrical grid. A federal grand jury has indicted a man from Tracy, Massachusetts for intentionally causing damage to a protected computer after he was accused of remotely deleting critical software from a water treatment facility. The man, Rambler Gaio, was employed as an instrumentation and control tech for a private company responsible for operating the Discovery Bay Water Treatment Plant located in Discovery Bay, California. The indictment was filed on June 27th and was unsealed on July 7th. Hackreed reports that Gaio apparently resigned from the company responsible for servicing the plant and subsequently uninstalled the critical software on the water plant's computers. We note that Mr. Gallo is, of course, entitled to the presumption of innocence with respect to the allegations. If convicted, Gallo could face up to 10 years in prison and a $250,000 fine. The motives for such an attack, if indeed it was an attack and not human error, are unknown at the time of writing, and according to the press statement, the FBI is investigating the case. Zscaler says the red energy malware operators are targeting entities in the energy, oil, gas, telecom, and machinery sectors. Red energy is what Zscaler calls a stealer as ransomware, malware designed to exfiltrate data before encrypting it. The researchers state, Zscaler recently made a significant discovery involving a new and sophisticated threat campaign named Red Energy Stealer, targeting the Philippines Industrial Machinery Manufacturing Company, as well as other industries with notable LinkedIn pages. 
These pages typically contain essential company information and website links, making them attractive targets for cybercriminals. Zscaler explains that when someone visits an affected website, they're redirected without their knowledge to a malicious site. Upon arrival, they're invited to install what seems to be a legitimate browser update. Should they follow that prompt, they will download not the innocent browser update, but the Red Stealer executable. It's a ransomware campaign that's relatively conventional in its effect, but it's noteworthy in that it's being deployed largely against industrial targets. And in case you were wondering where the love was from CISA, fear not. CISA still loves your security. On Thursday afternoon, the agency issued three new ICS security advisories. Check the advisories out if your operators and, as always, apply updates per vendor instructions. Our guest Christopher Ebley from Blackwood returns to discuss the IT-OT cultural divide in the federal space and IT threats that are impacting OT systems. Here's our conversation. You know, it's practically a cliche, the, the, the sort of uh, ongoing tension between folks on the IT side of the house and the OT side of the house. And I'm curious if that still stands. You know, it seems like there's there's been some time now. And uh, in your experience, is is there recognition across those two teams that, you know, good good collaboration is in everyone's best interest? I think there are varying degrees of that. I, I think you know. To, I think you know. A lot of times, those those factors still exist. We see we have customers we support where. Even though they're part of public sector institutions, there are different components and different aspects of an environment that fall even to different groups, such as like a union or something to that effect, where quite literally you're talking about different capital sets and different requirements to be able to even go touch something. And that's mm. an extreme example, but you do have have disconnects there. Um, on the same light, I think there's a general I can I can appreciate the general narrative for people who play in the OT space who are, you know, looking when they look at the idea of a vulnerability differently, because there might be factors where it's like, hey, we understand we have this thing, but the traditional processes of of remediation, patching and things might be a non-starter or non-reality, either because of the criticality of the system or because of the fact that we're sitting on, you know, some system that's still running on Windows 2000. And that's a it's a non-available aspect. And so there's a there's a factor there where there's potentially frustrations because the, tr- the general application of what would be a, a prescribed IT cybersecurity approach to fixing a problem may not be relevant in the OT side. But just the same, I think there's a there's a factor there where when there's an understanding of that, when there's an when there's kind of a an opportunity to lo- learn kind of the differences between these particular spaces and understanding that you know sometimes you're not going to have the luxury of controlling something at an endpoint level. Sometimes you're going to have to make more decisions on the network. Sometimes you have to understand that things are not as dynamic and ephemeral and and more static, and you can then in turn like take advantage of those particular components. I think I think there's a lot of things that could be huge wins, and so you know when you have organizations. That within their own security practices and stuff like that have understandings of those things, of those narratives. There, there's typically a lot of wins that come out of it. So you know, we see both. Yeah, I'm curious for for folks in the federal space who who really want to focus their career on OT cybersecurity. Do you have any words of wisdom, any recommendations for how they can best go about improving their skills and and going down that path? Yeah, it's a good it's a good question. I think like it's a uh, it's a funny question that I that I get a chance to not necessarily even specific to OT, but cybersecurity in general. That's you know, 
we are in an interesting position where a lot of the professionals that I work alongside have been in IT or OT for a very long time and have had the benefit of learning things over time and been able to go through career evolutions, whether it's someone who was, you know, doing system design or handling like substation connectivity initiatives or being actually do configuration of, of, of PLCs and other, of other different components and so they understand the nuance of, of a system, what it is, what the mission is, what the protocols are, what connectivity looks like, you know, and, and that becomes like a, a native facet. And then you're now just layering in a cybersecurity logic over top of that. At the end of the day, whether it's that or whether it's IT cybersecurity and the idea of having to understand, you know, how Windows works or Linux works or a network and network protocols and communication, they're all burdens of time. Um, and so it's not meant to be daunting, but some in some capacity, the, the advice is start yesterday, right? And it, mm. there's always an there's always an advantage to to understanding that there's a huge amount to be learned. And otherwise, I think like you know, for for the purpose of of getting exposure and experience in this kind of in this kind of space, I think any kind of any kind of lean in, um, especially into the network side of things, especially into the understanding of, of communication and then the understanding of kind of like, again, the overlay of logic to be able to do things like, like you know, whether it be specifically focused in a mission supporting a, a security operations kind of narrative around like IDIR and response or, or something where you're potentially on the, the opposite side of that, just working within kind of uh, a specifically prescribed team to like a transmission network or a generations network. Um, there's always an opportunity to be able to kind of get in from from the ground level. Um, and I think there's there's no ne no necessary wrong way to approach this, whether it's something where it's an evolution from a cybersecurity side where you're then learning the OT specifics or whether you're someone who's coming out of maybe non-cyber oriented OT narratives and you're trying to build the cybersecurity piece alongside that. But the end of the day is that to be to be successful, you need to be able to understand both especially yeah. as more and more systems become connected and we have like kind of the modernization there. To what degree do you think that certifications and, you know, that traditional educational path is valuable in this particular space? I think there are, you know, within cybersecurity as a whole, um, there are a number of different ways to look at this. Uh, you know, the, the, the guidance that I give people quite often um, is as far as like, the educational systems that are associated with this is that tr completely traditional routes may not be the most appropriate. And that's not just unique to the OT side, that's unique to, to cybersecurity as a whole. And, and some of the reasons to be totally candid is that if you look at, you know, a, a, a higher education institution, cybersecurity as a, as a practice, as a major, as a pursuit might be a relatively new concept to that institution. And you're looking at a field that pays very well. So sometimes when you look at that and say, if this field pays very well, and this person's a full-time professor in this particular space, it's like, what's the, what's the why between this person wanting to, to kind of be on this side of things? And, and what is the, what is the level of exposure I'm getting in terms of the actual uniqueness of that education? I think a lot of times you approaching like from, from the institutions such as SANS and stuff like that, that have very specific practice and very specific kind of career paths for people to pursue in terms of certifications and stuff that are, you know, cutting edge, that are led by like absolute leaders in this particular space. I think that starts to become like a, a differentiated path um, where, yeah, the outcome might not be something to the effect of a, a bachelor's degree, but it will absolutely be like a practical skill set or skill set that enables you to, uh, to kind of tackle a space. So I think cybersecurity as a whole in terms of the certification side and the value there, it's like there are, there are you know, your mileage may vary and there's some differentiation there, but I think for a lot of it, you have to look to, you know, 
very like different providers for that particular education. And then that's going to be combined with a, there's, there's no replacement for doing, right? So any opportunity you have to learn on the job and, or to be even pursuing those certification paths while actually like, you know, starting to tackle a career, I think is typically the best place to be from, from a success standpoint. Do you find that the organizations themselves are, are doing a good job of promoting and nurturing folks from within? Um, I, I definitely think so, I th- especially within the federal space. Like the federal space is phenomenal from a from a training and opportunity standpoint. Mm. Um, I think the the OT security side of things, where, where we see that prioritization, um, a lot of the actual coursework that I just referred to, we've seen a large amount of our client base pursue, um, especially kind of you know riding alongside or riding that wave of of understanding of the absolute importance of of OT security. Um, and so whether that's specific training that's provided by a very specific vendor that's that has a technological approach to the OT space or whether that's training that's being provided by like a more agnostic provider um, within there we are definitely seeing a focus there and the and and the, the public sector does a phenomenal job of providing resources on the training side um, to be able to build those skill sets. That's Christopher Ebley from Blackwood. In part two of our three-part discussion between Dragos's Mark Urban and the vulnerability analyst Logan Carpenter, they speak about vulnerabilities in the OT world. Here's this week's Learning Lab. Hi, this is Mark Urban with another edition of Learning Lab here on Control Loop. Today, I'm joined by Logan Carpenter. And Logan is a vulnerability analyst here on the Dragos Worldview Intelligence team talked about doing your research, you know, as an analyst and talked about walking through kind of the disclosure and reporting with the, with the vendor. And then, but let's turn our attention to, let's say we're an asset owner, asset operator. We've got, you know, these giant industrial systems and thousands and thousands of devices in, you know, in our environment. How do they keep track of vulnerabilities in their environment, right? They can't be, or, you know, are they doing the same thing? Well, they're not scouring the internet to find these disclosures, to analyze them. How does an asset owner operator kind of assess whether they have vulnerabilities in their environment? Yeah, so um, I think the easiest answer to this question is really the only way to do this that is, you know, the only feasible way to do this is you have to have some sort of tooling that does, you know, asset identification and is able to, you know, ingest intelligence, you know, whether it be the advisories that uh, vendors release um, or, you know, whatever the various vulnerabilities and CVEs that get published and map those to those assets in their specific network. So you would need some sort of tool and that's kind of what Dragos provides here, but there is the hard way to do it, right? And that's the manual way of kind of understanding your network, what's in it, and just trying to pay attention to, you know, the various Intel reports that come out about those specific devices, which honestly, I think, you know, is pretty much impossible to do without using tooling for it. Yeah. And and just disclosure, so Dragos has a platform that helps track assets, inventory, match those to vulnerabilities. 
also provide the worldview intelligence service, which is a, you know, being able to have that intelligence in human readable form. And those are some of the reports that uh, Logan writes. Well, let's get, we got that out of the way just to clarify that. Let's, let, let's look at then, okay, say that they have, wow, I've got 3,000 of these PLCs that, you know, there's a new disclosed vulnerability. What do I do? Do I do, do I go patch those right away? I mean, because that's the traditional thing in IT world. Hey, there's a vulnerability over here. You know, the simplest, straightforward way to do that is to, you know, let's assume that the vendor has a patch. And by the way, they oftentimes don't right away. But ha- what has to be done? Do you have to shut that unit down? Do you have to patch that unit? As you discover a vulnerability in your environment, what what should an asset, what are the considerations that an asset owner operator kind of has to take at that point? Yeah. So what I always tell people is like when you're like comparing OT and IT security, OT security is very like, it's more nuanced than IT security. So our recommendations are, it's kind of a, a different layer. Like you have this high level layer where you think of all OT networks, right? How can I provide the best guidance to them? as to what they should do. And then there's kind of this next layer where it's like, well, actually the right way to give you that answer is what is, you know, this, the specific environment you have, right? What is your OT network? You know, like are, for instance, like, can you risk, risk sh- shutting down operations is one thing, right? As far as updating, that's traditional for like IT security. If you have a PLC that's susceptible to some, you know, new vulnerability that's disclosed and they offer a firmware patch, it may not be possible for you to shut down operations to just patch one device. Some uh, uh, organizations will kind of do these cycles where they shut down operations to do things like that. And one thing that we do at Dragos will like our Intel team will offer additional mitigations that are outside of your traditional patch to firmware. So whether it be like you disable this service if you don't need it or block this port if you don't need it, uh, monitor the traffic going from here to here or restrict access to this particular device or this particular port are some of the mitigations that we'll offer as well outside of your traditional patching. And some of the things that like will whether or not you should care about this vulnerability, even though you have the device, what we traditionally will say is like if it's in the wild. Right. Was this vulnerability discovered in the wild? So is it being actively exploited? If that's the case, yes, it should be at the top of your priority list to either implement uh, suggested mitigations or workarounds or the actual patch, because this is something that adversaries are actively using to exploit OT systems. And then kind of the other level you will go is like, is it something that's easy to mitigate? Right. Is it pat is it patching firmware, which is not very easy because you got to shut down operations, or if it is it just adding an extra firewall rule that will kind of smooth things over? These are questions that asset owners have to ask themselves. And then another thing is like, are are you a targeted sector? So like if this was found in the wild, right, and it's been targeting electric utilities, if you're an electric utility, you should probably follow the guidance that's being published out there. So that's kind of the, the the response I have to that. It's like very nuanced, but the answer isn't always patching. Most of the time, it's not patching. Uh, most of the times, it's you know other alternate mitigations. But so, so the point being that yeah, it could take an electrical grid, or you could take a talk about a refinery or manufacturing. 
key goal is to keep that stuff going, right? You got to keep you got to keep that environment operating. And you mentioned that there are periodic maintenance windows where they shut these, you know, systems down or components down where they do perform maintenance, but that's something that's scheduled well in advance. There are a lot of procedures for how you do that safely and those are, you know, those are rare occurrences versus hey, let's just shut down these machines and, you know, stop production, you know, perhaps put, you know, safety at risk because you're doing it wrong. You're making the point that OT environments are just very different. Each one has their own kind of considerations, but kind of rule number one in OT is to keep the stuff moving, keep revenue producing, keep electricity flowing, keep the production floor moving along. And, you know, especially if there are alternative ways to mitigate the risk of that particular vulnerability. So that's, yeah, that good insight. It's like, hey, you patch your laptop, Logan, because we found this vulnerability. Thankfully, that's fewer and far between. Shutting down your laptop for 10 minutes is different than, you know, stopping a refinery for three or four hours. Yeah, and every now and then you'll, you'll get a vulnerability, like, for instance, uh, one that comes to mind is like uh, the Log4j one, right, where there was like a lot of hype and publicity behind it. Um, and it was very like one of those vulnerabilities that was in it was in a lot of devices, IT and OT, and there was a public proof of concept out there. And so stuff like this is stuff that like we often offer to find workarounds or, or patch because like you're kind of what we call script kiddies, those guys who just, you know, attack organizations just to brag on social media or, you know, they use like they don't use zero days they use like you know open source tooling and stuff like that those guys love to go use you know the the hype tools that are out there like you know the hype vulnerabilities right like the 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 ones that you could find in like metasploit and stuff like that so those are additional ones that we will kind of push to like all right we should probably do something about this because although like strategic adversaries may not be trying to attack you there might be like some kid in florida who's bored and wants to brag and like <laughs> an attempt to do it so there, there's always cases like that too but yeah it's very nuanced so you just brought up bad guys you know based on kind of the observations of you and kind of the worldview team can you talk a little bit about the sectors and industries that you see being kind of most at risk of attack I mean, we do we track these statistics in the Dragos Union Review, you know. But what industries out there are kind of particularly, maybe not vulnerable, but you know, who are more attacked than others? I mean, you know, critical infrastructure is always going to be the number one target, right? Um, with these, with with this, I mean, you can think of like the the whole ransomware side, which is more. You can argue is more IT, even though a lot of OT systems get get affected by it. They'll target like manufacturers and stuff like that because they're doing it for money. Um, but people who want to generally like the, the threats that we are kind of nightmare scenario, right, are the ones that affect the, the well-being and safety of humans. And generally, that's critical infrastructure. So whether that like the number one you would think of is like power, right, and everything associated with it, whether it's power generation, the transmission, those sectors are the most at risk, right? And and those are sectors that we always, like, if you look at all of the, uh, what is it now, non-ICS-specific malwares since Stuxnet, right? Most of those target energy, 
or utility, energy companies, utility facilities and, and, and things like that. Um, and then you kind of want to like those are I think that's the biggest group that's like the biggest industry that's under threat um, is the energy because we we constantly see it like we've seen it with Destroyer 2. We've seen it with um, Crash Override. Um, there's intel that suggests that like a lot of the pipe dream stuff was designed with uh, targeting these systems. So definitely the energy sector is is probably the most at risk. And then, you know, if you're worried about getting ransomware, if you're making a lot of money and you're a big company, probably at risk <laughs> for that. So kind of the, you know, the uh, we don't really focus on that. So there are a lot of attack groups focused on energy. And you're saying like manufacturing, which is maybe they don't sometimes even think they have operational technology. They do. That's when what runs the kind of the manufacturing plants. But your point is that's where the ransomware gangs come in because if they can disrupt those operations, they can get a big payoff. Is that effectively? Yeah, yeah, they can get a big, they can get a big payoff. And I mean, it's not manufacturing technically; it is energy. Um, but like the uh, Colonial Pipeline is a situation, right? Uh, it's they're manufacturing, they're transporting a commodity, right? Um, and it's a money making operation. Right. Opposed to like a lot of energy companies are subsidized and co-ops and stuff like that. They do make money. Um, but generally the adversaries that are going to attack those, they're just trying to disrupt something like we've seen in Kiev happen over and over again. Right. Let, let's let's go back a little bit to the, you know, if I'm an asset owner operator, once you identify devices vulnerable, how do you prioritize action? Like, you know, or if you have several vulnerabilities that you're managing, say you're, you know, hey, I have acceptable mitigation for these, or how should an asset owner operator kind of think about prioritizing kind of the vulnerabilities in their environment? Well, it, it kind of goes back to the, the question you asked earlier, where, you know, the response was like, it's a nuanced response. And what the asset owner needs to ask themselves, right? All right, first step one, are any of these vulnerabilities being actively exploited? If yes, that's probably the priority, right? Those particular vulnerabilities are probably the, the priority. If no, you know, is there a public proof of concept that's been released with it? Maybe it was a research project, right? For some university, they discovered some vulnerabilities, but they published their proof of concepts to GitHub, right? That is more of a threat than one thing that people kind of get hung up on is like the CBSS scores. Right. But like if you want to think about it like this, like 10 CVSS score that has no proof of concept that was, you know, discovered by MITRE. Right. Is not as scary as maybe something that's a six or a seven that has a public proof of concept or is being actively exploited in the wild. So you kind of have to use that mindset when prioritizing things, because at the end of the day, right, it's all about risk, right? What is your risk? And, you know, it's okay to accept risk at times, right? Patching this or implementing these mitigations to that particular device is not feasible. So then you have to get to the point where you're at the phase of risk acceptance. And okay, I'm willing to accept the risk that is involved with this particular vulnerability. So the way that I calculate risk with regards to vulnerabilities is the risk is high if it's publicly available and is actively being exploited. If it's not, you know, it's much lower. It's much, much lower. 
So, so you mentioned CVSS. What's a CVSS? What does that stand for? So that's pretty much, uh, I think the, the acronym is Common Vulnerability Scoring System. But you can pretty, pretty much, it's a number that identifies how vulnerable, well, how impactful a vulnerability is, right? So when you find a vulnerability, let's say we find, um, you know, for IT terms, cross-site scripting, a cross-site scripting vulnerability on some, you know, website, right? Or some web server that's publicly available. That particular vulnerability will get assigned a number by what a CNA, which is pretty much just an authority that issues these CVE numbers. And that CVE number will get assigned a score based on, you know, a bunch of different things. Pretty much you, it's a collection of, you know, things like, is there a public POC? You know, does it allow increased um, privileges, like privilege escalation, things like that. And you put all these yes or no, you answer all these yes or no questions, essentially, and it gives you a number. Now, the thing with CVSSS, CVSS is like, it should be taken with a grain of salt because um, number one, the whole CVE system was in, designed specifically for IT systems, IT vulnerabilities, IT security. And like we mentioned earlier, we can't you know, compare apples and oranges to each other. And because of that, the CVSS scoring mechanism is not tailored towards I, uh, IoT systems. And also, if you understand the inner workings of how these vulnerability disclosures happen, there's a lot of like, I'd say like almost negotiating between whoever found it and, you know, who's ever found it and who's affected. So like, for instance, if I found a vulnerability, I'll go to the vendor and be like, hey, I found the vulnerability. I think this vulnerability has uh, a change in scope. It offers a change in scope and they can go, oh, I don't agree with that. I don't think it offers change in scope because of X, Y, and Z. Or I believe this is actually a privilege escalation uh, vulnerability. And they can go, well, no, not necessarily purpose escalation because of whatever reason, right? And you eventually settle on something. And sometimes that can be incorrect uh, and not in the best interest of, of the public. So that's why Drago's like, at Drago's, we offer our own score that we kind of go back, we look at the actual vulnerability, we analyze it, and we go, here's our, you know, new score that actually reflects what we believe this uh this vulnerability, you know, score should be. And so that's because we're taking what it was an IT type of thing and we're applying an OT lens to it, which is very different. So it's like, yeah, that might be a good CVSS in the IT world. Let's take an OT lens to it and give you more practical understanding of what the risks are. And also people get things wrong too. You know, like if it's, if somebody's self-reporting a vulnerability too, right? Like, they get things wrong sometimes. And um, that's something that's, you know, not mentioned very often, but, you know, sometimes people report vulnerabilities and, and, you know, they'll, they'll be mistakes. So, and sometimes the reason why we don't go and try to argue with the CNA to change the score is because that process is complex, convoluted, and it involves, you know, us and, you know, the vendor who's affected and the CNA who published it and having to do all this conversation to amend some CBE. So it's a lot easier for us to just go, here's our score and offer it on our platform. 
Gotcha. So let me just do the roundup of acronyms. You talked about CNA, which is Certified Numbering Authority. That's an organization that issues a CVE, which I had to look it up, uh, Common Vulnerability and Exposure, because I know what it is, but I don't remember what the acronym stands for. So CVE is a Common Vulnerability and Exposure. CVSS is common vulnerability scoring system, right? So that's the, and your point is like, hey, this, the CVE, which are numbered, hey, you get CVE dash a number string uh, to uniquely identify that CVE in the information. You're saying, you know, rather than trying to revisit all that, we take that and we do an OT kind of contextualization around that, if that makes sense. Is that a fair description? Go ahead. Yeah, we'll put an OT lens on it and we'll, uh, fix any mistakes that we believe were made and, and report those. Yeah. Logan Carpenter, uh, our vulnerability ana- analyst here, here at Dragos. Thank you. Uh, thanks for joining. Thanks. Uh, thanks for all the kind of cool information about vulnerabilities. And I'm glad we have you out there looking for them with the other folks here at Dragos uh, and kind of given that context to, you know, how people can manage through it. Much appreciated. Yeah, uh, thanks for having me. I always enjoy nerding out over vulnerabilities. Um, So whenever you need me to talk about something, I'm always available. And that's Control Loop, brought to you by the CyberWire and powered by Dragos. For links to all of today's stories, check out our show notes at thecyberwire.com. Sound design for this show is done by Elliot Peltzman with mixing by Trey Hester. Our senior producer is Jennifer Iben. Our Dragos producers are Joanne Roche and Mark Urban. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here next time. <laughs>